we are still in the context of Hebrews chapter 2, where we have really sort of zero in on that title, Lower Than Angels, which is code in the book of Hebrews for Jesus becoming a man, for the Son being humbled as a man, being lower than the angels. And here we continue on with his humanity, because that really is what is at focus. These are some of the most precious verses in all of Scripture, because they they, they really bring up the humility of the Son in a way that connects us directly to the cross. And by way of the passages that are cited here from the Old Testament, it's really a remarkable thing what is being said and what is being done here so that we really are on holy ground here because reminiscent of the fact that the author of Hebrews is bringing up what the Son says in quoting for us Psalm 22. We know that the place where Jesus quoted Psalm 22 was on the cross. On the cross. And so this is going to bring us in direct contact to this worship, this praise, this proclamation of the name of God to his brethren, this singing, if you would, of the Son who sings the Psalms over us. It's just glorious to even fathom. But uh, verses 10 to 18 give us a a picture, give us really the ultimate aim, if we would, of Jesus' death, beginning with the divine propriety of what it means to put the Son through suffering, verses 10 to 13 here, and then consequently to introduce to us Jesus' son and priestly role, really the, the priestly role of the son, verses 14 to 18. But uh, here in sending the son to suffer for us, what the author is setting before us is that God is perfecting both our salvation author and our salvation bond. Two things then, two things. The perfecting of our salvation author and the perfecting of our salvation bond with him. And so this is all about what God has done. Look at the phrase, for, he says, it was fitting for him. I'm gonna make a big deal out of the word fitting. Why? Because, if you would, the verb there, it was fitting, is then completed for us, but not until we get to the word perfect, which is the, inf- the, the, the infinitival clause that completes the thought of the verb. What am I saying? It, it really can be summed up like this. For it was fitting for him to perfect. That's the thought. Everything else is parenthetical. Everything else is a modifier of what is fitting, uh, the aspects of what is fitting, the results of what is fitting, and and that's what I want to focus on with you. But I want to do this under the banner of the wisdom of God because that is precisely what is being said here, that in the economy of God, in the mind of God, the way that God chose to do this was proper and right and wise. 
And number one, the reason why it is wise is because it is pleasing to him. And that is what is meant by it is fitting. It is proper because it is pleasing to God's will. It is according to God's ultimate redemptive purposes in Christ. And we see all of this. This is several ways that the mission of the Son accords with the wisdom of God. Number one, it accords with the wisdom of God in that it results in the glory of God. And you saw that already in verse 9. Because there it says, we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, there's the same wisdom, that is the same idea, plan that God had their purpose, the suffering of death. It's the same way of talking about it was fitting to perfect the author through suffering. So it is here because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor, you see? And so the suffering of the son is a, re a revelation of the wisdom of God because it results in the glory of God. It results in the vindication of his son. And we've already looked at this by referring to Psalm 45 earlier on in the chapter. The author of Hebrews is essentially talking about this very issue in Psalm 45, verse 3, where it talks about the mighty one, that is the king. And the psalmist says in Psalm 45, 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. That's the exaltation that we're looking at here. The total vindication of the Son of God, that is what it results in. The glory of God, all of redemption, all of the suffering of the Son is for the glory of God. And we saw that in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, he was humbled, he became a man, he took on the form of a servant. Why? So that every knee would bow. Why? For the glory of God the Father. And so the suffering and the humility of the Son is according to the wisdom of God because it glorifies God. And secondly, it is also fitting because, the second thing is because this is the only way that God can redeem man. This is the only way that he has chosen to do it. Look at verse 17 here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made. You see that? divine necessity was placed upon him. He had to be made like his brethren in everything or in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the only way that God could do it. The only way that God was going to satisfy his wrath, the only way that God was going to satisfy his justice, it was by the sending of the Son. It was by the sacrifice of the Son. It was by the Son standing in your place, in your stead, taking your place on the cross. That is the only way that someone can make substitution for you, a substitution that is adequate enough, as we talked about even in Sunday school, to absorb the wrath of God, to remove the wrath of God, to, to satisfy the justice of God, the anger of God, the holiness of God. It must be 
that he be made like his brethren, that he suffer as a servant. This is fitting in God's economy. Mankind was created in God's image so that God himself could redeem them. Nothing else is created in the image of God. <laughs> Animals are not created in God's image. And I know I'm going to offend a lot of you dog lovers in here today. But no, I do not believe in the resurrection of your pets unto glory. My wife and I have had heated debates about that in the kitchen. As much as I want my little furry pets to be there, they were not, it was not the creatures, it was not the all moral beasts that were made in the image of God. It was the man, Adam, who was made in the image of God, and he was made in that image so that God could redeem him. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, is about the story of Jesus Christ coming to redeem God's people. He made us in his image so that the one who was the image of God would come one day to redeem them from the fall. And so, he redeems us in order to renew us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one glory to glo from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So the second reason why it is pleasing to God is because this is the only way that He could do it to redeem us. And thirdly, it is fitting to God because of the certainty of the outcome. The certainty of the outcome. Now, two things have to be mentioned here. The security of the redeemed and the vindication of the redeemer. The security of the redeemed and the vindication of the redeemer. Because Jesus was put to death, because of the suffering of death on the cross, God has secured all of his elect people in Christ being redeemed by his new covenant blood. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5 to show you the security. And on top of that, the redemption of God's people is the perfection of the Son as well to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. This perfection, in other words, means that God's Son was uniquely qualified to redeem us. And so he had to be made like us. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, you see the total picture. He says, in terms of the humanity of the Son being for the purpose of redeeming God's people. You see, although he was a son, verse 8, Hebrews 5, 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, same context, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so there, 
consequential to his perfection, being made perfect, being qualified, having, being worthy to represent man through suffering. He was, he was qualified. He was tested and proven. And because of that, he became the source of eternal life for all of us of eternal salvation. So not only is the wisdom of God that which pleases God, but also the wisdom of God is also based on the character of God. Look at back in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. A quick little doxology is thrown into the text to say, look, this is the way that God did it. And who is this God? Well, since you asked, it is he for whom are all things and through whom are all things. In other words, it, is, it, is, it has to do with God's godhood. That's why he redeems man in this way. It has to do with the godhood of God. Turn to Romans chapter 11 because there we have a very similar idea, Romans 11, this doxological statement, therefore, sort of emphasizes the infinity of God's wisdom, which has already been spoken about in Psalm 8. You remember earlier on in the context, beginning in verse 5 through 8, there he quotes Psalm 8, talking about God, his wisdom, his work, or at least talking about his lordship, his power, his dominion. And then he talks about here in... uh, in, in, in Hebrews 2, that everything is from him and through him. This is an all-important passage in Romans 11. It's an all-important parallel because it shows that we cannot quench, question God's dealings. And that's exactly what's in view here in Hebrews. You remember what Paul says. He comes to the end of the book of Romans, or at least to the end of the explanation and exposition of what his definition of the gospel is. Before he goes on to practical matters, the apostle Paul closes up that book or that that section of the book with this doxology. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That word there, unsearchable, means you literally cannot trace God's footprints. That's literally what it means. It means like if God were to walk on a beach and there were his footprints, you would walk after those footprints into infinity and you will never reach the end of those footprints. They would go on and on and on. You would run out of gas. You would, you would sooner run out of the grains of the sand than you would run out of God's footprints because his ways are unsearchable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Or, ha- or who has first given him that it might be paid back to him? For from him, through him, and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. This is where the Westminster Confession and all the subsequent confessions get their classic statement. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? The, 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 the chief end of our existence is the glory of God. Are you acquainted with that? 
Have you relished that? Have you savored that? Have you tasted that? Have you enjoyed that? Does that come into your mind, into your thinking? That you are alive and that the purpose of existence is way beyond this little temporal world that we live in. But we have a greater cosmic eternal existence and purpose for our existence in God's great glory. I don't remember how old I was when it dawned on me. The theological truth that is probably the most important of all. God does everything to uphold his glory. God is not an idolater. He doesn't do anything else for anybody else's glory. Everything else terminates on the glory of God. Everything. It's beautiful. It's the purpose for why the universe exists. is for the glory of God. And that is precisely what Hebrews is telling us here. The one that is the, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, that one whose ways are inscrutable, unsearchable. His wisdom is so profound, the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. That one, it is according to the very wisdom of God that his son should suffer in our place. Wow. The wisdom of God is displayed supremely on the cross. What an amazing thing. The gospel is the wisdom of God revealed. Let me give you the third thing. The wisdom of God is also here expressed in his redemption. And that is from the phrase that you find here. Not only is it fitting for him because from him and through him are all things, but also in bringing many sons to glory, what we have there, therefore, is the expressed reason or the result of God doing it this way to bring many sons to glory. Now, the phrase there, many sons, goes back to verse 9 where he said, he has tasted death for everyone. Who is the everyone? Well, it's the many sons. It's the brethren in verse 11, verse 12. It is the congregation in verse 12. It is the children in verse 13, it is the descendant of Abraham. In verse 16, it is God's people. In verse 17, that is the everyone, the, son, the many sons whom he is bringing to glory. And how did he do this? It's interesting, but that scholars have pointed out here, exegetes and commentators have pointed out there, that what the author of Hebrews is doing here in this idea of bringing many sons, and then he introduces this Greek word, archegos, which literally means leader, pioneer, author, the, the, the originator, the founder, the captain, if you have a King James, the captain of their salvation. And so what theologians have concluded is that the author of Hebrews here is probably, probably trying to provoke Exodus imagery, where Jesus is being seen as a new Exodus leader who leads his people to glory, who leads his people his congregation, even as Moses led his kind of the parallel between Moses and Christ will become crystal clear in the next chapter. But here, Jesus is also called the author of our salvation. What an amazing title for Jesus Christ. He is the author. This Greek word here, archegos, 
can be translated pioneer, as I said, leader. He is the originator. And every time in Scripture, it's used, it's used uh, five times in the Bible, and this one, and then two more times in Hebrews, and it's also used twice in the book of Acts. And it always, always refers to Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation. So every time, like what it talks about in Acts chapter 3, you put to death the prince of life, right? The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. The prince of life, that word prince is the same word here, archegos. In chapter 5 of Acts, verse 31, again, he is the one whom God exalted. There you have the idea of exaltation to the right hand, the prince and savior, beautiful, right? He is our prince, our savior, our author. And of course, if you look here within Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 gives us the other use in Hebrews, and it's this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the originator, right? And the perfecter, we could see the one who completes our faith. Beautiful, beautiful. He is the one that leads us. And because Jesus is our prince, our author, because he is the originator of our salvation, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all of those who will identify with him. Let me give you a couple of verses on that. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Prepositions are everything in the Bible. Through him. That word through means the gospel. <laughs> that word through contains the whole gospel message because we know that through him means through his death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the atonement that he made, the atonement that was accepted by the Father, they made propitiation for our sins. And you're like, that's in the word through? Yeah, that's in the word through. This is what would drive you crazy at 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> trying to wrap your brain around one prepositional phrase. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, which is reminiscent back to Isaiah 53, I will appear a second time, he will appear, excuse me, a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The next time he comes, he will not come to make atonement for sin, but he will come for those who eagerly await him, those who are willing to be identified with him. I mean, perhaps the fullest picture is given to us in chapter 5, again, where it says in verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. This is why it is wise for God to have sent his son to be perfected through suffering so that by the suffering, through that suffering, the redemption of God's people would be accomplished what the world regards as totally weak and despised and shameful and repulsive and unthinkable, God regards as absolute wisdom. <laughs> right? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I was talking to a young lady at UNT this past week who said, 
um, I heard you say that you don't believe that Catholics are Christians. What's the difference? I said, everything. I should have said the word through, <laughs> right? The gospel. It's because I don't believe Catholicism has the gospel. I believe they have a heretical gospel, a gospel of works. And so her response to me was so telling. She said, but aren't we all just trying to work our way to heaven? And I thought, yeah, we actually are. But the Bible is written diametrically opposed to that worldview. The Bible is written completely and complete at odds with that worldview. That man cannot save himself. And Jesus didn't die just to become an option. He died because it was absolutely necessary for him. He died as a revelation of his wisdom, that which the world just does not understand and never has understood and never will understand on its own. Look at what it says there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness. Don't expect the world to get it. They don't understand propitiation. They don't understand the incarnation. You tell a Muslim that God became a man and he'll look at you like you are out of your mind. And that is because his thinking is not in line with the wisdom of God, but in line with the wisdom of the world. And he says, it is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us that are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, watch this, for it is written, it is useless, folks, it is useless to try to get on some, some human level understanding with the world. This is why I can't, I can't stand it when pastors or churches or people try to capitulate to the culture to try to be more like the culture so that hopefully the culture can identify with the church. Hey, you guys do that we do that too no 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 no. we are completely opposite well our worldview is should be foreign to you you shouldn't look at the curse of the cross and say that's wisdom no 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 because paul says it is god himself who laid aside the wisdom of the world look at this for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise this is god speaking he, he will destroy the world's wisdom. He says, and the cleverness of the clever, I will set it aside. He discards, he does away with the wisdom of the world. And he goes on to say exactly what he's talking about. He's calling out Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caesar, Obama, every president, king, ruler, emperor, philosopher that does not have the wisdom of God. Well, I mean, I hope Brock, anyway, I don't want to go any further with that. The rulers of this age did not understand this wisdom. They regard it as utter folly. You are going to live your whole life for that? A crucified Messiah figure? Some guy that rose from the dead? You're going to base your whole life on that? Surely you're more open-minded than that. No. As a matter of fact, there is nowhere to go if you want God's wisdom. And this is why God goes on to say in verse 20, where are you going to go? Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? 
Where's the debater of this age? In other words, no one has the capacity to overthrow the wisdom of God. Where are you going to run to? Greek philosophy? Where are you going to go to? Existentialism? Empiricism? Where are you going to? Postmodernism? There's nowhere for you to go. All that is out there for you, aside from the wisdom of God, is darkness, blackness, and hopelessness. This is why Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Wish that I could go on and on with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So glorious, but only to see that what we're looking at here, brothers and sisters, as we are gazing right into the very soul of the wisdom of God. We're gazing into the very mind of God and how in the economy of God he chose to redeem us. He chose to do it this way. How? So, by putting his son to suffer with us. So he perfects the son through suffering. That's what he's saying here. The son, it was fitting, it was right, it was wise, it was pleasing to God, it resulted in redemption. It was good for God to do it this way. Do what? Perfect the author of our salvation through suffering, i.e. the cross, right? But what about us? So next, he moves into what I call perfecting our salvation bond. Perfecting our salvation bond. Bond, And he does this by giving us four common principles that bind us together with Christ. Number one, we have a common source. Now turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 because there's an exegetical issue to discuss here. Verse, verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that is us, are all from one Father. And if you have an NASB, you see a squiggly line there. You see a, sorry, you see an italicized uh, word there, right? Because the word Father is not original. Henos just means one. So what he's saying is there's no pater, that's Father. So what he's saying is they are all from one. So exegetes have had to grapple with this. What does he mean? We are all from one. <laughs> and all these theories come out, right? It takes me hours to work through these commentators. And sometimes I'm just so mad at them for taking me down these trajectories. It's just like, was that really necessary? That I need to read 10 pages of a commentary to know that that's not speaking about Adam. <laughs> that is a view. He's saying we are all from one, meaning we all come from one humanity, Adam. That is a possible interpretation. I want to tell you that the word father is an interpretation. I think the, the ESV has it a little bit more uh, generic with the word source. We are all from one source because what they're saying is we leave the interpretation to you. Now, I like that. However, I do believe that father is an adequate or proper interpretation. And so then I would land with the idea that what this is talking about is that we are all from one God. We are all from 
really the purposes of God, what God has done in Christ. All of this comes from the mind of God. After all, that is what we just got done talking about in verse 10, that it is God's wisdom and purpose, and it's fitting, it's pleasing to God to do it this way. So it talks about the boundless purpose and wisdom of God And what the point of Hebrews is, is we all have our originating point in that, in what God has conceived and what God has done. We are all rooted in the same family to sort of flesh it out. So we have a common source, namely God, who unites both the one who sanctifies, that is Christ, He is credited with sanctifying us. That will come much clearer in the book of Hebrews later. And those who are sanctified, namely us, we are bound together in God's divine initiative in the Father's sending of the Son and in bringing many sons to glory. In other words, we are united in this ultimate source of salvation, both the means of salvation through the suffering of the Son and the objective of our salvation, which is to bring many sons to glory. That's the way I look at that. So what that results in, tracing the familial uh, uh, thread, is a common brotherhood. So we have a common source, and now we have a common brotherhood. Look at the text. It says, we are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. What the incarnation resulted in was a common brotherhood with Jesus Christ. He is not ashamed to call us his family. Remember, it was on the cross when Jesus looked down and said, who is my mother? Who is my brother? You You know, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son, right? So we have a a common brotherhood, being in the family of God, being adopted into God's family through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And through the incarnation, Jesus came to his people. He came to his brethren. As a matter of fact, this is predicted way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman that would come and dwell among us. This is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that among your own brethren, one will arise. One will arise. And he's going to quote a passage of Scripture here to emphasize that. But let me just make, make something out of this word shame. He is not ashamed to call them his brethren. That just hit me like a ton of bricks because for so long I was ashamed to be called his brethren. I was ashamed of him. We were all ashamed of him. The Bible says we all turned away from him. We all went our own way. We reckoned him despised, stricken, smitten of God, and forsaken. We looked at Christ. We looked at the cross, and we saw something unworthy there. And Jesus looked at us and said, I will identify with them. I am not ashamed to be numbered among them. This is grace. 
I mean, this is the grace, this is the soul of the grace of God right here, that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for this very thing. It was a very common thing in the first century to be ashamed of people, not wanting to associate with a certain group. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself, and this has great Application for the book of Hebrews, if you think about it, Hebrews is written to a congregation, we know, that is thinking about going back to Judaism and is flirting, therefore, with apostasy. And it's also written to a congregation that is experiencing persecution. People that, are, that know what it is and that are acquainted with being ashamed or having people be ashamed of them, being despised, being despised. And the apostle Paul himself He knew this personally. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. There were those who refused to recognize his imprisonment as a work of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, what a marvelous, marvelous passage. There is Paul at the end of his days. And how did Paul die? Folks, The greatest theologian of the Christian church died a very, very lonely man. He said it himself. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.16, all have deserted me. Wow. And then he says, but the Lord stood with me. See, that is the confession that we have to hold on to until our last breath is that we say, though all forsake me, though I may die alone in a convalescent room, yet Christ stood with me. And if any of you have done convalescent home ministry, sadly, it is always sad for me to hear these old folks sitting in these convalescent homes talking about how nobody visits them. Their family doesn't even recognize them anymore. They just forget all about them. It's been about a year or two since their daughter or their son came to visit them, and they are absolutely alone. But you are not alone. That's the point. Paul, in that cell, was not alone. He said, the Lord stood with me, and he delivered me from the lion's mouth. He delivered me from all of my adversaries from all danger. And so not only do we have a common brotherhood, but look at we are in a common church. That's the title I gave this. I just wanted to think of the concept of being in church with Jesus. This is why church attendance is so important, because Jesus will be at church on Sunday. Will you? He goes to church. He doesn't miss church. And some of you might be saying, yeah, but he doesn't get sick either. (laughs) I know there are legitimate reasons, but I'm trying to stress that we are in the same congregation with him. Look at verse 12. After he says, he is not ashamed to call his brethren, he says, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. Now, I want you to do me a favor and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Because there I thought, you know what? Is Bart Ehrman wrong? Raise your hand if you know who Bart Ehrman is. Bart Ehrman is a textual critic who was a student of Bruce Metzger, 
probably the best and most renowned textual critic that has ever been, probably. Uh, he studies manuscripts and he, he deals with variants in the New Testament Bible and things like that, things of that nature, the canon, things of that nature. And Bart Ehrman has since apostatized from the Christian faith. He has gone out from beneath his mentor and has denied the Christian faith and no longer believes the Bible to be reliable and now writes the most incendiary things against the Christian faith and writes very, very, um, very, very um, blasphemous things against God's word and against God. And, um, but I wonder, is Bart Ehrman right? Because you see, I saw Bart Ehrman on a program. I forgot what it was. I saw a news clip of it. And I watched it and I hear Bart Ehrman just kind of throw out. Jesus was confused on the cross, you know, pointing, trying to point to a contradiction. He says, in one, on the one hand, he seems as if he's confident in God. He's, he's praying to God. He's trusting God. But then in another context, he seems as if he doesn't know what's happening. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quote that verse. He quoted that verse out of Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, do you know where that comes from? That comes from Psalm 22, specifically the psalm here in Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verse 12, where it says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. I will, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So the question is, is when did Jesus evoke this psalm? It was on the cross. So what Bart Ehrman failed to see is that far from Jesus being confused on the cross, my brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that when Jesus was on the cross, he had a razor-sharp mind, and he knew exactly what he was doing with his last breath. He fulfilled biblical prophecy. When he said, if you're there, Matthew 27, when he said in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't confused. He wasn't as if he was saying, where is God? I don't know. What happened to him? Did he go somewhere? Jesus was fulfilling the demands that were placed upon him that he would be the Messiah who would sing in the midst of his congregation. What I'm trying to tell you is that when Jesus was on the cross, brethren, he was singing over you. Can you imagine that? There he is hanging on the cross, grasping for the next breath. And what does he do? He sings a psalm over his people, saying that he will identify with us when everyone had forsaken him. When all the apostles had turned away, Peter denied him. All of them didn't want to be identified. Look, look at the context of Matthew 27, verse 36. The context is that Jesus was surrounded in a chorus of blasphemous mockery. Look at verse 37. Above his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was done in blasphemy. And verse 39 those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads as if they were saying, what a loss, what a joke. Verse 40, they were saying this, 
You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you, if, if, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You want to talk about irony. They don't know what they are saying. Come down from the cross and we all are finished. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Can you think of anything more blasphemous than that? Come down off the cross, and we will believe in you, even as you've asked us to. He trusted in God. Let, him, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. So they are blaspheming. They are ashamed to be identified with him. But Jesus, in an act of unspeakable, unimaginable grace, says, I will be identified with you. And so I will sing in the midst of my congregation. I will sing in the midst of the people. I am not ashamed to call them my brethren. And so he quotes Psalm 22 in fulfillment of the divine constraints that were placed upon him as the Messiah. Just remarkable, remarkable. Unbelievable that Jesus would do this for us that he would identify with us in this way. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is the prototypical psalmist who sings God's praises in the midst of God's people. And the reason I can apply that to you in the 21st century is because the author of Hebrews applied it to his church in the first century. He's saying, this has, this has application for you. <laughs> this is a great promise that you should cling to. Jesus singing over you with gladness, not ashamed to call you his brethren. Oh, how glorious it is. And because of all of that, it also means that we have a common calling. Finally, we have a common calling. So not only does he quote Psalm 22 here in verse 12, verse 22, but he also then moves on and quotes another verse, namely Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Now let me read to you the words from Isaiah. You ready for this? Isaiah 8, verse 17. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. And that is the first part of the Hebrews passage. I will put my trust in him. What the Septuagint and what the commentators are saying is that that reference is to this. I will wait eagerly for him. I will trust for him. He's waiting on the Lord. And then verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Just to, just to encourage you in your reading of the Old Testament, just be sure to understand that whenever Zion is mentioned, Jesus is never far behind. <laughs> 
It's always a clue. Here comes Christ. Here comes the gospel. No other way to get to Zion. Zion is unintelligible unless Jesus is reigning in Zion, king of Zion, reigning over his people from Zion. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews is going to say that the new covenant believer who comes to Jesus Christ has come, already come, to Mount Zion. Remarkable. It's this already not yet tension in Scripture. We're already reigning with Christ. We're already part of God's kingdom, at least spiritually, and that kingdom will come consummately. But here he is citing this because Isaiah is identifying with the people. Essentially, he's saying there is a remnant, there are children that will eagerly wait on the Lord when the majority of Israel had rejected the word of the Lord, had ignored the word of the Lord, refused to hear the word of the Lord. And here what he's saying is that he, Isaiah, and the children that he has given me, they will wait for the Lord. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that this was typologically fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting about typology? Is that it is not an afterthought. It is not, brothers and sisters, it is not as if the apostles sat after the, the Old Testament was written and thought, you know what? What type of typology can we come up with to prove what we believe about Jesus? No, 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 no. Typology is part of the package. <laughs> Typology is the way that God wired the Old Testament. It is intrinsic, inherent to its nature. It is written, I am saying, Isaiah wrote this, and when he wrote this, it already had typological force. It was already looking ahead. And you know that because of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. You know that based on what that says, that they were, in the spirit of Christ, they were writing, they were researching, and they were already prophesying and already indicating the things about Christ. You know that's one of my favorite themes. You know that. You know that. But our common calling with Jesus is to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord. So what is he doing here? He is provoking them to faith, faith. Don't lose, your, don't lose your confession. Don't lose your confidence. But believe. Believe. Just as Jesus waited on the Lord, he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Father that he would not allow the Son to undergo decay. He trusted that God was able to deliver him even though he was surrounded by his enemies. Just read the context of Psalm 22, especially verses 6, and six through 8. That's the context. But we too, we too are called to trust in the Lord, to take heed to the things that we have heard in the gospel. You know what this, is, what this speaks to, to us here? The lesson for us is that God's strength is perfected in weakness. Because as Jesus became weak and identified with us, he identifies with our weakness. That's why he becomes a sympathetic high priest. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so we look to this passage to say, Jesus trusted in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. We have no greater example than that of the incarnate, crucified Christ who was crowned with glory and honor. Our path 
brothers and sisters, our personal, final vindication, salvation, glorification is bound up in the wisdom of God and it is bound up with Jesus Christ. The lesson here is to love the suffering of Christ and not despise your own suffering. Love the sufferings of Christ and don't despise your own sufferings, but suffer with him. Let us go outside the camp with him. We have to be prepared to suffer. We have to suffer rightly, and we, we have to put our hope here. Where is our hope? Where is our hope, after all? If this is not our hope, we have no hope. And so Jesus died, suffered, so that with him we can trust him. Notice what he says here. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Total divine sovereignty. The father gave a certain number of children to the son for safekeeping, to bring us to glory. That's why he did it. And so our hope is that no amount of suffering, our hope, no amount of pain, no amount of disease, no amount of sickness, no amount of persecution. Who knows what is coming in this century for this church in this nation? I don't know. But as I look at what's happening, I can only, I can only wonder, are we going to be that generation that experiences persecution on an unprecedented scale here in America? I don't know. And if we do, guess what? It will not be a big deal in God's eyes. His majority of his church is already there. 300 million Christians in China live every day under the reality of what really suffering for Christ looks like, of really what it means not to be ashamed of him and the, the treasure, the precious gift of what it means that he is not ashamed of you. And so whether we enter into a time of persecution or whether we simply battle our own suffering in this lifetime, our hope has to be firmly with the Lord, understanding your union with Christ, understanding you're bound with Christ. And because you're bound with Christ, then in the words of the Apostle Paul, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, Lord, help us and remind us to know the awesome privileges that we have, the truth, Lord, of what it means to suffer with Christ, even more importantly, what it means that Christ suffered for us, that he is qualified to represent us. He is qualified to redeem us. And because of that, oh, Lord, you have established such a beautiful salvation bond with Christ. Thank you, God, for bringing us into your family. Help us to see us in our right light. Help us to see us as we really are, that we are children, that we are heirs, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. Father, help us to be encouraged by our privileged status. I pray that this would be fuel for our hope as the days become increasingly darkened at times, uncertain, and sometimes bleak, help us never to lose sight of our pioneer, of our trailblazer, 
the author of our salvation, who will take us home because he is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him. And it's in his name that we pray, Father, amen.